People, welcome to Junkyard Theory, and tonight's guest is none other than the legendary Jim Planet. He is a gaffer who has over 40 years. Over 40, or is it like close to 50? Uh, it's over 50. Uh, it's over 50. Over 50 years of experience in the industry as a lighting technician slash gaffer. He's worked on films such as E.T., Young, uh, Young Frankenstein, and Braveheart. And tonight he is here to talk with us about his amazing career. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Jim, could you kindly you know, walk me through uh, your origin story? Like, how did you get into the field? I know your dad uh, was also a gaffer. He's been in the industry since 1919. So could you give us a little bit of a backstory? You've been reading my biography. Um, Hell yeah. <laughs> anyway, my, my father was a gaffer uh, who started in 1919. He worked for 50 years. I wanted to make sure I worked longer than he did, and I have. Um, but I learned a lot from my dad. Um, when I used to visit sets when I was a little kid, I'd look at all the lights, and I'd, I asked him once, I said, how do you know where to put all the lights? Well, he said, first you have to learn to look at light. And then when you have to recreate it on a soundstage, then you have an image in your head. It's the best advice I ever had. Um, so now what I try to do is to make the lighting invisible so that it just helps tell the story without calling attention to itself. I think when people light with the idea of, hey, look at me, uh, they take the audience out of the movie. And what you need to do is draw the audience into the story and into the movie. Um, and so making it as unobtrusive as possible, but yet helping to tell the story, whether it's making it uh, very contrasty because it's a serious drama or whether you make it bright and sunny because it's a comedy. Uh, you help tell the story the same as the costume designer or the, the, or the music for the movie or the production design. It's all to help tell the story. You're all working together. And it's really important to remember how collaborative the movie business is because you all have to be aiming in the same direction. The production designer has to design the sets with the idea that they have to be lit and photographed. I've actually worked with a couple of production designers who did not understand that. One of them designed a courtroom scene in a room without any windows. And it just was mind boggling. I couldn't believe that he had done that. And I said, how are we going to light a nine page courtroom scene without with all the lights inside the set? They need to be outside coming through windows. And, you know, he got exasperated and he said, all right, I'll give you your windows. And I said, you're not giving them to me. You're giving them to the director so that he can make this movie look correct. Uh, it's, it's, it was hard for me. He was a very experienced production designer, but he didn't understand collaboration. And that's the important thing. Um, you know, when the costume designer designs a bright white dress, for a black actress, you go, wait a minute, uh, this isn't going to work. And they have to keep all those things in mind. Um, so it, it's wonderful to work together with the other departments and plan ahead. And then there's no big surprises when you arrive on a location or a set uh, because you're all on the same page. That's really important. Um, you know, when I started, uh, we were using arcs. And uh, they're wonderful lights, 
big and heavy and they require a person to operate every single one. So if you had 10 arcs, you had at least 10 crew. And, uh, but it was important because the gap between the carbons determined how bright the light was. And so if it changed during the shot, the stop, would, the brightness would change. So um, when they were, when they're necessary, they're essential, but no longer. Um, the latitude now, the, the change is the latitude, both of the film and of HD. It's now so wide, it digs into the shadows and holds the highlights at the same time. So you don't need as much light. In the old days with cowboy hats, you'd have an arc for every actor in a cowboy hat to light under the, the brim of the cowboy hat. And you didn't see it because it still was two stops underexposed, but you could see their eyes and you could see their face. So it, it's gotten easier, but it's the, still the same challenge. Um, I'm about to start a movie and the DP just sent me a note because they're shooting in France right now. And he said, the director changes things at the last minute. So you have to be prepared for that. Well, you do have to be prepared for that no matter who the director is, because that the only thing you can count on in a movie is change. And you're all set and they said, oh no, I don't want the camera here, I want it over here. Oh my gosh, you know, you have to be ready. And, uh, and I try to keep the lights out of the set so that if you change the angle, you don't see a light, you know? Um, so I, told, I assured him that we were fine and, and we're shooting with a Sony Venice, which is 2,500 ASA. And so you don't need much light. And uh, as long as it looks real, and if we're in a, on a location, it's all location work. Have the lights outside, coming through the windows, and shoot any angle you want, you know. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, in this idea of making light look real, I did a couple of movies with Sven Niekvist, and he told me that when he scouted with Ingmar Bergman, he would take stills on the locations. And sometimes the shutter speed was a quarter of a second, but he got still. And then when he got there, he made it look like the still, but you know, with more light. And that's the idea is to make it look real as possible. Um, so, and, yeah, no, go uh, ahead. So, uh, speaking of collaboration, how, how early on do you as a gaffer join the production? Well, it varies um, depending on how complicated it is. This little French thing I'm doing is only a week of prep, but that should be sufficient. If I feel it isn't sufficient, I tell them and make sure that I get sufficient prep time. Um, a friend of mine, John Toll, was hired to do Legends of the Fall, and it was his second feature. And he asked the production, he said, uh, how much prep do I have? They said, six weeks. So he said, how much prep does a production designer have? And they said, well, uh, uh, 12 weeks. And he said, look, I'll come up 12 weeks ahead if you just pay my per diem for the first six weeks, but I wanna be there when you pick the locations. And, and he won an Oscar for the movie, uh, but it was so important for him to be there because they were building this big ranch house. And uh, you know, which way was it gonna face? North, east, west, whatever, south? And so he was there to say, this is where it needs to be. And the production designer said, okay, whatever you say. And uh, so it worked out really well. And the director was interested in a good looking movie and, 
and the assistant director was as well. So the way he did the schedule was in the morning, we shot east. In the afternoon, we shot west. In the middle of the day, we shot inside the ranch house. And it worked out great, you know. And John held a screening for the ASC. And when the lights came up, Haskell Wexler was sitting behind us. And he said, John, a whole movie in backlight, <laughs> which it was, you know. And But the audience would never think about it. Uh, it's just, it looked wonderful, you know, so. And, and you may, yeah, uh, I really like what you, for the advice that your father gave you about, you know, how to learn how to look at light and right. uh, how, how, where did you start and like, how has your, uh, perspective on like, uh, observing light changed throughout the years? Well, you know, I started, um, <laughs> I did uh, a few days as a permit, which is when the union doesn't have anybody to send out, they send a non-union person, in 1957. And I worked on I Love Lucy, and I worked on some westerns at Warner Brothers. And so I was just an electrician. I worked up on the scaffold, usually setting the lights that the, you know, the gaffer would say, all right, point it over here. And so, but when I, when I started, on a movie or a TV show, I would ask the cameraman or the gaffer, may I go to dailies? They used to see dailies at lunch. And they always said, of course. And so I could see what we had done the day before and then see how it came out on the screen. So I knew what worked and what didn't work. I vividly remember in 1966, watching a gaffer with a foot candle meter take a reading on the right side, the middle, and the left side of a person's face, and he had 400 foot candles in all three positions. So I knew, no, that's not right. You know, that's, that's not the way you light. And so you learn what not to do and what to do. Uh, I watched new gaffers say, all right, put a baby right here. And then they'd light it and, hmm, okay, make it a 2K. And so I learned that when in doubt, go for the bigger light because you can always put a double in it, you know. Um, of course, today it's so much different because everything's on a dial and you can, you can change the color temperature. You don't need gels anymore. And you can change the intensity with just a dial. And, uh, but the, the whole idea is the same. It's just easier. I, I just finished a movie where we had LED screens out the windows of the set. 70% of the movie was shot on this set. And we shot the plates for the LED screens. And the thing is, you could look out the window and see people walking along the street or cars driving by, the, an actor across the street, the boyfriend of the woman living in the apartment. He reacted to her because we'd shot the plate that way. And um, so I had... Uh, sky panels above the LED screens and I, and the, the cameraman shot everything at 4,400 degrees Kelvin. So I needed daylight and tungsten. But with a sky panel, it's just make it daylight, make it tungsten. I mean, it's 10 seconds. And uh, so the daylight lights I had it at uh, 5,600 at 100%. When we went to night, um, I changed him to 3,200 and I put him about 
And then I had a couple of lights that the set was elevated eight feet because it was supposed to be a fourth floor. So I had some lights below coming up like street lights or something. And uh, if I'm able to show you stills, I can show you some stills from from the past that you might enjoy. Um, yeah. I mean, if you could uh, actually share those, I could uh, put them up in the video afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Um, anyway, th that worked really well. And I, again, this was Steven Soderbergh. So I knew that he wanted to be able to shoot in every direction inside. Yeah. So I didn't plan any lights inside at all. Um, I had- Did you go for like practical lights? Like, did you build them into the set? Well, see, this production designer is somebody that I've worked with before. He says I taught him everything about lighting. But when he designs a set, he thinks about that. So there were plenty of practicals all over the set, you know, for me. And it was just wonderful. You don't have to. It's just great. And so that we, would, we knew we'd see the ceiling. But in the middle of the ceiling, I had two pieces that would go up and some muslin that would come down. And I put a sky panel through that at different color temperatures and different density. But the muslin just makes for a kind of ambient light because there's a place in the movie where uh, the woman yells, Kimmy, turn out the lights and all the lights go out. And so if you want to see anything but pitch black, you need a little bit of ambience and muslin diffuses the light so much that you don't even notice. It just looks like ambience. And so that worked out really well as well. A movie that I've, I've always been, uh, you know, very interested about how you lit it was uh, the artist because this is a black and white picture. And Which one? Yeah, the, the artist. Oh, the artist. Yes, of the course. Artist, yeah, because uh, I mean, the, lighting for black and white versus lighting for uh, well, color. How do? How, what are the challenges and like how does uh, stuff change on set? Well, um, I know that's kind of a what people think. Hmm. It wasn't that different. Uh, number one, we shot color film because we wanted the 500 ASA. And then we just made it black and white, which is really simple because you, you know, you, you scan it and, and out do it digitally. Um, so we had 500 ASA, but we really wanted it to look like uh, a twenties black and white movie, which is not film noir. And we watched a lot of movies and they're pretty fully lit and they have a, a certain kind of a, softness to them. So we we used a filter on the lenses. We used a glimmer glass, which is something you use to make women look beautiful, but it, it worked great for what we were going for too. And, uh, but it was much the same. The, the, the difference in black and white is sometimes something that's gray will look, we'll say the wall and the, and the jacket there will be different colors, but in black and white, they'll both be gray. And so you have to be sure there's, there's definition between the two. And that's why monitors are so helpful these days, because you can see right away whether you have a problem or not. And the monitors were all set for black and white. So uh, it, that part wasn't difficult. Um, I've done three black and white movies, and uh, they've all been a lot of fun. It's really the first one, of course, was Young Frankenstein which was the only one that we did on black and white film because Mel Brooks wanted to be sure that it was released in black and white and he didn't trust the studios. So we shot on black and white film. And I actually know of a movie shot to be black and white and the studio decided to release it in color and the director had no control over it. And, 
and they'd shot it as if it were black and white and they used different colored lights and stuff because it didn't matter it was black and white when it came out in color it did matter so can't trust anybody <laughs> you can say that again <laughs> uh you've shot movies around the world and uh something that i've always been you know uh, curious about is like how do you light for a specific country because the lighting changes like the country tone changes from one area of the world to the the next like countries like like Sri Lanka they are closer to the equator and uh you know our, our sunlight is like pretty harsh whereas uh in the US it's kind of softer so uh how do you guys you know uh work around this well i you're right of course but um in the US we have every sort of light i mean we have you know northeast and southwest and they're entirely different and so when you're there you are aware of what the the contrast is and and of course monitors they're so helpful uh you look at the monitor you go oh my gosh i didn't that doesn't look good we got to you know we got to add more fill or we and uh so quite often like um on syriana i worked in dubai and luckily we were there in november so it was only 115 um but uh but so for day quite often uh you don't need to use lights you use big 12 by 12 if you're shooting backlight you have big 12 by 12 muslin bounces and you just bounce the light back and that's the fill uh sometimes you'll need to put a light into the bounce um so i'm always prepared to do that but uh but it it's it just uh as long as you know where to put the lights it isn't that difficult it's when you can't let's see how how do i light this that's the problem and i'm assuming like you, know, you work very closely with the cinematographer and yeah. uh and uh how clo uh you know in 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 order to achieve the the director's vision how do the two of you collaborate? Like, do you start off with the screenplay and like then break it down, or uh, uh, what's what's your process? Like, I'm I'm pretty sure it changes from production to production. But is there anything that's been a constant throughout uh, everything, every film that you've done? Well, the the most important part is the prep, and when you're scouting these locations, you're talking with the director and the cameraman about what what the plan is. What's the thought? How how do you see this? Where do you anticipate the camera being? And uh, again, you might get some definite answers, but then when you get to the location and they watch the first rehearsal, everything can change. Um, I think storyboards are a waste of time and money because I think it, the actors are who should tell you where the camera is going to go by what they do in the scene. And I think uh, a director needs to let the actor do what they want to do for the first rehearsal. Because as much as you might think you know what they should do, they could surprise you with something else. And you go, oh, well, that's better than I thought. Let's do it that way. And that's important. You know, that's their contribution. Again, collaborating. Uh, if you start telling an actor right away, oh, go do this or go to the window, they feel like puppets and they quit contributing. Uh, I did a movie with David Mamet and the first day, the first rehearsal, he said, action. 
and the actors start. And he said, now, Gene, at this point, you go over to the window. And Gene Hackman stopped, and he turned around, and he said, why are we calling this a rehearsal if you're telling me what to do? And the assistant director said, okay, guys, take 10, get some coffee. We're going to have a meeting, you know. Uh, and it didn't change very much, but Hackman just resented that because what the director was saying is, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to tell you. Uh, I don't care who the, Gene Hackman, certainly you don't tell what to do, but any actor, I think, let them show you what they have in mind first. And after they do that, they'll do anything you ask. But let them make a contribution, you know, right or wrong. Let them show you what they've got. Um, I said that to another director, and and he agreed. Oh yes, you're right, Jim. I'm going to do that. You're right. And I watched him for 12 weeks try to not tell him on the first rehearsal, and he never succeeded. He always said, "Oh, now now you go to the sofa." You know, it's a shame. And some of the actors just quit contributing because of that. But anyway, as I was saying, it's it's prep. And so you talk about the style with the cameraman. And then when you actually get to shooting, I while they're setting up the camera and the shot, I try to show him something. And so when that's all set, then he's got something to look at. And it might be, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's do that. Or, you know, maybe we should have a little bit less or make that a little bit softer. But then because the lights are in position, it's really simple to make those minor changes. But if you wait for him to tell you what to do, again, you're wasting time. And then, of course, then the gaffer's not contributing. So let the gaffer show you what he or she has in mind and then go from there, you know. Um, that way, you know, you feel as if you're contributing, not just following orders. <laughs> Very true. What kind of lighting uh, equipment do you use the most? Uh, on film sets nowadays? Well, um, I use a, a, a collection of everything. I use, mm -hmm. Mole Richardson makes the most wonderful Fresnel lights, and I still use those, but then I use sky panels and light mats and LED strips, and so I use a mixture of everything. Uh, recently, I used these new LED 20Ks that Mo Richardson's making and LED 10Ks. And they draw so little power that I ran them on a putt-putt generator. And, and we tested a 10K against a regular tungsten 10K. And the LED 10K was a little bit brighter than the, the old tungsten. And so, and you could actually plug it into the wall of a house. You know, that's how little amperage they pull. So they're, they're really a huge improvement. Um, I really enjoy that, but I use a little bit of both. Gotcha. And, uh, you know, uh, during the prep stage, you guys obviously have, have some sort of a reference uh, images, maybe like what you want the, the footage to look like uh, once it's color graded and all that. So how, how often at all uh, do you, you know, confer with the the colorist, or, or if you do, if you do not, how do you make sure that you achieve that specific look? Because sometimes, I, I, I guess, like you know, uh, the the lighting, like not not sometimes, like the lighting definitely does affect the color grade. So, how does that process work out? 
Well, um, usually I leave it to the cameraman because, you know, and we always, almost always agree on what it should be. Recently, I did a movie called Lansky about Meyer Lansky. Um, and the DP was from Finland. And during the pandemic, he went back to Finland with his family. And so he wasn't here for the DI. So I did the DI. And I recommended the colorist to the director, who is a Tim Stippen, a wonderful colorist. And so we did it together. And uh, it's really important that somebody be there, either the cameraman or the gaffer, because the control in a DI is total. Um, you know, if you, you can increase the fill light on a person's face by just, just that, only that part. And that could destroy the look you're going for. You know, if you're not there to say, no, no, we planned it to be that dark on that side of their face. Um, so it's really important that the DP or the gaffer be there to make sure that the look you are going for remains. Because if you're not there, they can just completely change the look of your film. So sure. I trust the DP. And, uh, and in this case, he trusted me. And uh, he's pleased with the final look. And uh, the, the movie didn't get much of a release, unfortunately. It's available VOD, Lansky. It's a, a beautifully shot movie, I think. And uh, there's an actor at the end playing a CIA agent that looks a lot like me. So um, <laughs> be sure to wait to the end. They'll be putting the the, uh, the name uh, in in the in the description, so be sure okay, to check good. that out, guys. Very good. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to you know certain certain movies and certain scenes, like uh, you spoke about realism, but uh, you often see these scenes where you know uh, if you think back on it and you're like, uh, that's not how it looks like. I mean, uh, those lights do not necessarily uh, uh, exist in in reality. That's not how things look and is there anything, uh, any any sort of uh, notion that you know uh, lighting can be way too unrealistic for a scene, or is it more about like stylizing and setting the tone for uh, that specific scene which you're shooting? Um, you know, it depends on the the tone that you're going for, um, but generally, um, you, you see the lighting on me. Uh, this computer is not placed here accidentally. It's placed here because there's a window over here that is nice and soft. It's non-direct light. It's a nice half light, very soft. Um, also, I like to light people from the side of the camera to which they're looking. If they're looking camera left, the light ideally should come from camera left so that the fill side is a uh, is the one that determines the mood of the scene. And that's the one that the camera would see the most of. Um, so if you're setting up by windows, you make sure that the camera's in a position so they're looking toward the window. Um, it doesn't always work, but it's it's best when it does. And what about, you know, genre, uh, like let's say you, you're, you're about to shoot like a horror movie or something, how often do you guys go back and refer different movies and, uh, you know, draw inspiration from what's already been done versus, uh, you know, stepping into a whole different, whole new territory and doing something, uh, well, that's not traditionally done within the genre. Well, you know, um, 
I don't think I've done that many horror movies, but uh, but certainly young any other Frank genre. Uh, horror was just uh, a placeholder. <laughs> yeah, certainly young Frankenstein. We took a look at the originals and we tried to 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 make the the, the new one look similar, um, with uh, you know strong direct light, and uh, uh, we still made Terry Gar look beautiful, of course, but that wasn't that difficult. Um, but, you know, sometimes you do get inspiration on the artist. We certainly looked at some old silent movies to get a feel for the that look. Um, and the artist was just such fun to do. Um, the director would uh, play music during every scene. So the actors would kind of get in the mood. And he was very specific about the music he played because there was no sound. And then at the end, he made CDs and gave one to everybody on the crew so they would have a memory of the movie, which was really sweet. And uh, that was a, a wonderful experience. And uh, movies like Braveheart and E.T., so uh, uh, big budget, high profile movies, working with people like Mel Gibson and Spielberg. Like how, uh, how have those movies changed your career? Well, E.T., which we did in 1981, was not a big budget movie. Um, Steven Spielberg had signed the completion bond for the movie. So any, he was responsible for any overage. And if things kind of slowed down, he would say, come on, guys, hurry up. I'm going to lose my furniture which was an exaggeration, but, um, <laughs> but we did it uh, in 55 days for $10.5 million, and we were all over the place. Um, and so, and the, the DP on that, it was his first feature, and so they wanted an experienced gaffer, and I was somewhat experienced then. And uh, so we played good cop, bad cop. If we had to tell Stephen something he wanted to hear, Alan would tell him if, it was something he didn't want to hear, I would tell him. And uh, that worked out really well, of course. Um, but again, most of us really knew that we were doing something special. Uh, it had a different title when we were shooting, just in order to hide what it was really about. It was called A Boy's Life. Uh, but we knew that's not the title, you know. Uh, we all had badges with our pictures on it because he didn't want anyone on the stage that wasn't shouldn't be there. Um, but it was, it was really great. We had a great time. And on, on Braveheart, that was John Toll's third movie. And he was not the type of cameraman then or now who would just shove the director aside and say, this is what we're going to do. Uh, he wanted Mel to end up with a movie that he wanted. At, and so he just waited for Mel with some help from John to figure out how to shoot it. And uh, we shot six weeks in Scotland and 16 weeks in Ireland. In Scotland, it rained almost every day. And uh, so we were kind of getting behind and over budget. And um, John said, we're going to get fired. We're going to get fired. Then one day driving to work, he said, uh, I have good news and bad news. I said, well, what's the good news? We're not going to get fired. Well, what's the bad news? We got to finish the movie. Uh, we shot for 108 days, the longest schedule I've ever had. And uh, 
but it was again a great experience and mel gibson could kind of sense when people were getting tired or frustrated and and so he would pull some kind of a joke or say something really funny just to lighten up the atmosphere and uh, because of that it was just as difficult as it was uh, it was a pleasure it really was you know with, with the movies that you've shot like you guys you guys started shooting on film and then you know eventually transitioned to digital how how do you think like uh, lighting kind of i know there's this debate film versus digital some people still prefer film others go digital but as a gaffer uh, what do you prefer and uh, you know how how do you think like uh, like lighting where does it look best well you know even though i'm old um i prefer hd uh given the choice 100% of the time i would say hd um i did a movie a really good movie that not a lot of people saw called suffragette about women seeking the right to vote in great britain in 1912 and 1913 and that the cameraman was a young guy from spain who i'd worked with before named edu grau and he wanted to shoot on film and the producer said no 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 we don't have the money for that we got to shoot hd so eventually they came to a compromise we shot all the day stuff on film and the night stuff hd and uh we did tests and in order we shot 16 millimeter film make it cheaper uh in order to make the cut from film to hd seamless we pull process the 16 millimeter film a stop and a half and uh that got rid of the grain and smoothed out the image and now you cannot you watch the movie you cannot tell which is film and which is hd you really can't and it's a really good looking movie period picture wonderful production design and costumes um and a great story with wonderful performances Meryl Streep and Carrie Mulligan and Helena Bonham Carter and it's just uh it's a really good movie that everybody that's seen it loved it just not enough people saw it um it was released in the United States by Focus Features and the producers were really happy about that but then Focus Features just dropped it without any without much publicity or advertising or really a shame but anyway we shot both film and hd and uh there's no difference in the lighting it just especially now because the latitude of both are are much the same from shadow to highlight and uh, so i don't i don't do it any differently gotcha and do you use light meters uh, pretty much all the time or do you you know just go by eye no i do it by eye um in the beginning I with HD I used a meter and so I would what I would what I do is within a scene there's just one area that should be correct exposure there are other areas that are over and other areas that are under so I pick the one that should be correct and that's where I do the meter reading and so I would do that and say okay 28 so they'd put it on 28 and I'd go to the monitor and I'd say hmm all right stop down and so they'd end up stopping down at least 2/3 of a stop. So what's the use of a meter then? The meters, you know, because the film was actually a little bit faster than than they were saying. 
And so the meter wasn't accurate. So I don't use a meter. The only time I would use a meter sometimes is, is during prep. If we don't have a monitor, you know, if, if we're just prepping pre-lighting without a monitor or something, I'll use a meter, but uh, otherwise I don't. Gotcha. Have you ever shot anything uh, day for night? And if you did, uh, you know, what was uh, like, what was your uh, technique for achieving that? Um, I don't think I have actually, but I, I have strong feelings about it. Um, it used to be when you shot day for night, you had to avoid the sky because you could never make a day sky look like a night sky. Um, and so some of the old Westerns that do these huge wide shots day for night, and you just, you knew right away it wasn't night, but now you can, you can change the sky. Yeah. In, sky in the DI, it, it takes two minutes and you have a go from a day sky to a night sky. So you don't have to worry about the sky. So what you do is you make sure that the sun is either a backlight or a three quarter backlight. And mm -hmm. then what you have to do though, is you have to match that the brightness if you're continuing that light. So you need big lights for day for night, um, even if you don't have to worry about the sky. So um, I would really like to do that sometime just to see what it's like, but, but I haven't. Have you also, uh, uh, this particular film, uh, The Adjustment Bureau, I'm pretty sure you guys had some uh, crazy VFX shots and like maybe you know, shooting on green screens. Uh, how, is there anything that you specifically you know, try to keep in mind when you are lighting uh, a green screen or, or a blue screen scene or uh, how does that work out? Uh, on The Adjustment Bureau, I don't think we did any green screen at all. Nothing at all? I don't think so. I'm pretty, um, gotcha, okay. Pretty sure. I mean, we were up on top of this building with, you know, the the Radio City Music Hall. We were on top, looking at the uh, Empire State Building and, and some wonderful things. But no, no green screen. Uh, okay. I'm not a big fan of green screen because the actors can't relate to what's there. Um, mm. We did some green screen on Ocean's Thirteen. I think. Thirteen. Yeah, thirteen. Um, but you just, uh, and visual effects people are all different. You know, when you're gonna do green screen, I say, how bright do you want the green screen to be? And sometimes they say, well, it needs to be a stop brighter than your stop or a stop darker than your stop or the same as your stop, which is, which is correct. It, and it just, it's personal taste on the part of the VFX producer. Um, so I've done some. Um, and now it's even easier than, than it was um, because of the control of the lights we have. But, um, and on Oceans 13, uh, we had some trans light backings out the windows that we had shot the plates for. And I, when they were being printed at Warner Brothers, I had them printed slightly out of focus. Um, mm -hmm. So they would look farther away. They're only 15 feet away from the set, but they look like they're 100 feet away from the set because they're slightly out of focus. And you'll, if you see the movie, you'll never for a second imagine that's not reality out the window. Uh, it worked really, really well. 
working with Soderberg, I guess, must be uh, quite an experience, right? Because uh, he pretty much changes his approach uh, from movie to movie. Like he's been he's been on the, high, uh, the studio side of things, and now he's shooting with iPhones. So uh, <laughs> I, I certainly haven't worked with him with an iPhone, but um, yeah. this movie I just finished with him. Uh, he's been shooting with a red since he did Che, and and he's used different models of the ray of the red. But right. um, and you know when when we started together it was on traffic, and uh, that was the first movie he was going to be the cameraman, director, operator as well, um, and so he was interviewing a lot of gaffers. I heard. And then I got a call to go in for an interview. And so we were talking about movies and lighting and and the production manager was there and the assistant director was there. And so then Stephen all of a sudden said, uh, Jim, he said, do you have a style? And I had never thought of that before, but for some reason it popped into my head. This friend of mine years before had taught a class at a place called the Sherwood Oaks Experimental College and it was on, on lighting for low-budget movies. And the name of the class was Cinema Minima. And so I said to Stephen, uh, yes, Cinema Minima. You're my guy, you know. And uh, that's, that's his style, is keep it simple, stupid. Um, and so, you know, we wanted traffic to look like a documentary. Uh, and so we kept the lighting to a minimum. And uh, like in the scene, there's a big courtroom scene introducing Michael Douglas to the movie. And <coughs> it had a wall of windows that faced north. It was perfect. So we didn't use any lighting at all. It just, it was so real that we didn't have to. Um, but in those days, you know, he took care of the camera and I took care of the lighting. And, um, then after six movies, he learned everything, and then he started going to young gaffers so that he could tell what to do. <laughs> when I met him in 2019, this is at, this is at uh, Sundance, uh, he was pretty excited for the red phone, which I, I don't think they continued that model, but I think it was because he could, you know, possibly put it like in every nook and cranny, uh, have no, have no uh, problems lighting it up, you know, <laughs> scenes and right. all of that. But, yeah. I've seen I've seen all of his movies, and uh, I I just I understand now why he's not using the phone anymore. It's you know it has its pluses, but it's got a lot of minuses too. So true, high flying bird certainly kind of showed uh, some of those drawbacks yeah. when it comes to lighting, but the story was pretty. It's interesting he the way he works. Like on this last movie, um, we'd come in and to the set, thinking about the day's work. And so he'd sit there and he'd look at the site, the pages for the day and uh, walk around a little bit, thinking and thinking. And then what we shot was only exactly what was gonna be in the movie. It was no wide shot and then coverage. It was, we're gonna do this angle and then we're gonna do this angle, but totally only what was gonna be in the movie. And, uh, it worked out. We averaged eight hours a day. That's pretty low. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Some days they would say, okay, guys, that's a wrap. Have lunch and go home. <laughs> and 
and still i mean uh, his production like they they happen like pretty fast i guess it's the whole uh, keep it simple keep it stupid and know what you want uh on screen before you go out there and like get it right uh i read years ago a memoir of john houston and mm -hmm. in the memoir he said i don't go to the editing room after the movie because the way i shoot it there's only one way to put it together and in those days, that was important because sometimes the studio would just completely recut your film. But mm. if he didn't cut, if he didn't shoot anything extra, there's nothing else they could do except cut it the way he shot it. That's what Stephen does too. Gotcha. Do you, uh, so do you, do you guys, uh, I mean, look according to shot list and like setups, camera setups and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, camera, well, camera setups and lighting setups. So, how many do you do you as a, as a gaffer like average? But how would how much would you like to do? I'm I'm sure it depends on the production, but ideally, and that's not something I think about at all. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. Um, you know, I, I think, um, and it depends on how complicated the setups are and. I guess if you're doing 20 setups a day, I guess that might be all right. But I, I never think about that. But and and if you are, you know, uh, uh, working with someone like Steven, uh, it kind of like uh, I don't know if you have like a set number of setups either because you shoot what's gonna end up in the movie. So I guess you guys like change things up pretty fast. Right. Yeah. So uh, anyway, the the movie that we did recently is is called Kimmy, K-I-M-I, -I, and uh -huh. it's it stands for a, a machine like a, a Siri, where the woman who works for the company will say, Kimmy, and, and this little machine lights up and says, I'm here, turn on the TV, boom, the TV comes on, you know, and um, so it's uh, it was really a fun project, and it's a good script. Uh, Zoe Kravitz plays Angela, the woman who works for Kimmy, and uh, she's agoraphobic, and it's during the pandemic, so she's really inside her apartment. That's why so much is shot there. But then something happens that forces her to go outside, and that's a big deal for her. Gotcha. Um, but she, but it's it's so important she's willing to do it. So uh, and Zoe Kravitz is just a wonderful actress who can you know but so many of the scenes she's just by herself and yet you know what she's thinking and what she's feeling by just looking in her eyes um it's it's really good i hope you have a chance to see it it should be out sure. i think by the end of the year looking forward to that um, i had a question regarding action scenes and how you guys like that stuff because action takes quite a lot of time to cover so do you, do you go for practicals or do you have various setups? Well, it, you know, it all depends on mm -hmm. the, the environment that the action is taking place in. Um, you know, what you, what I would think you would do in that situation is again, make the lighting as simple as possible and as out of the way as possible because the camera may be looking somewhere that you hadn't anticipated. So, if it's a big night exterior, um, you know, maybe you have a light on a condor, but it's behind a building and up high enough that they'll never see it. And um, anyway, again, just making it as simple as possible so they can look in every direction without getting into trouble. 
Gotcha. And, and you know, today, today at night in a city, um, there's enough light. And yeah. so you, you may want to add some light at the very <laughs> background to give some depth. And you may want to put a little bit of light in the foreground to, to help the, you know, the actors, but in the middle, it's done. You don't have to worry about that. Um, I just did a, uh, a, a kind of a workshop at AFI and mm -hmm. it was about night lighting. And uh, so we had this big AFI building that we lit at night. And uh, I used this LED 20K in a condor and I put a half triple on one side and it lit this building. And then uh, I used a 10K uh, bounce near the camera and I just had some babies inside the building coming out the windows and the doors and stuff. And uh, I tried to, I didn't want to use a bunch of gel on the little babies. And so I made the 20K and the 10K bounce 4,000 Kelvin. We were shooting on film. I don't know why, but the instructor wanted to shoot on film, but we had 500 ASA film. So we shot a gray card at 4,000 Kelvin. So in order to make it gray, they had to warm it up a little bit. And so that warmed up the lights that were inside the building without putting gel on them. And uh, it worked out so well. Um, it, it just, it, it doesn't look lit. And yet you see the building and you see that the light coming out of the building is probably uh, stopped brighter than, than the building light. It just looked real, you know. It was, it was really a great lesson for the students to learn, I think. We also shot, after we did the film, we put the HD camera on the, on the dolly and shot with that. We were able to, so the difference between 500 and 800, it's only half a stop. Oh. So we just stopped down a half a stop and went from 2.3 to 2.8 and shot that. So I haven't seen the HD footage yet. I've seen the film footage, but it looked really good. Amazing. Uh, what about a situation where, you know, uh, the production doesn't necessarily have the budget to acquire all the lights that you need for a scene? In a case like this, how do you uh, work around that? Like, do you guys like maybe use water or like various other reflective surfaces? How do you pull this off? Uh, luckily and truthfully, I've never been there. I've never had, um, but usually um, I order fewer lights than they anticipate. So um, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, a little quick story. Uh, 30 years ago, hard to believe, I got a call from a production manager and he said, uh, I'm doing a movie in Chicago with Steven Poster and he wants you to be the gaffer, but this isn't your kind of movie. I said, well, I'm sorry, what do you mean? He said, we're low budget, you know, we don't have money for Musco lights. And I said, I, I could do low budget. Anyway, I got the job. And on our first location scout, we're in this house overlooking Lake Michigan. And in the script, the curtains open revealing Lake Michigan. So they showed us that and I'm sitting there thinking, boy, ideally it would be hard gels on the windows so it's not quite so bright out there, but those are expensive and 
this production manager turned around and he said, hard gels are in the budget. I said, good, okay, great. Then we went outside and the director said, okay, it's the night shot. They, they pull up to the house and then they drive off at night. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we need a condor down there. We need a condor down there. We need an extra generator. We need two extra men. Oh, what am I gonna do? And the production manager turned around he said, two condors, an extra generator, two extra men. They're in a budget. <laughs> so the important thing is for the people that are making the budget to know how to make a movie. And as hard as it may be to believe, sometimes those people don't know how to make a movie. And you run into trouble when something that should be in the budget isn't in the budget. And then, oh, no, that's not in the budget. Well, it should be in the budget. You read the script, didn't you? Um, so luckily, I haven't run into too many of those people. Some, but not too many. Um, and, you know, now with 40 and 50 years experience, uh, they listen to me. And also, they also know that I don't order anything that I don't definitely need. And so when I ask for something, they know I need it. Uh, on this last movie, when I signed on, they said, okay, we have uh, you, a best boy, and five crew, and a rigging crew. So I said, well, number one, I don't need five crew. I only need three. And I don't need a rigging crew. Oh, okay. So then whatever I asked for, I got. Because they knew... I wouldn't ask for it if I didn't really need it. I don't order things just in case, you know, mm -hmm. and they all know that. So I don't have any trouble like that. So does that come with experience? I'm pretty sure it does come with experience, but uh, at the same time, uh, well, prep. And also uh, I, I assume you go, you know, you check the locations out and then uh, kind of like uh, think about like, what would you actually need versus uh you know, I think it's like, again, the bare minimum, cinema minima, right? Right. No, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, I was doing a movie and we had a big night shot. And so I asked, we had a rigging crew, which we needed. And uh, I asked for a 60-foot condor for the night shot. Mm -hmm. So when we got there, there was an 80-foot condor. I said, uh, I, what, what's, I ordered a 60. Why is there an 80? Well, just in case. I said, no. If I want a 60, that's what I want. Nothing just in case. Well, he said, this is a $50 million movie. I said, pretend it's a $5 million movie. You know, if you have all the equipment in the world, anybody could do it. The challenge is doing it without everything. Um, it's, it's really important. So even as a gaffer, you are essentially solving problems from day one, right? But that's the fun. Exactly. No, for sure. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it still. I mean, you know, I can mm. I can retire. Nothing. It's easy, but I don't want to. You know, because it's still fun. I'm still encountering things I haven't encountered before, and problems that I have to solve that I haven't solved before, and like these LED screens. I've never done that before, and so boy, this was great, and it worked out fine. So. It's always nice to you know hear like pretty much every single guest that I've had on board talks about you know approaching a film, any project that they do with 
pretty much like a blank slate and they look forward to learning uh, while they're doing something you know uh, while they're on the project Absolutely. and i guess that's kind of like what goes into you know uh, creating something that's truly world class right no no I, uh, that's for sure but you know and it's not just the gaffer that learns but even directors learn on the job yeah. you know and uh, but as again that's that's the challenge and that's the fun kind of like chess in a way right i mean like you you figure out like what what the the how do you uh solve this particular problem you're stuck somewhere how do you get out of it with the 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 pieces that you have and probably when you start off solving problems you had to make you you make uh so many moves but then as you go on and gain more experience like you the, the number of moves you uh make kind of like reduce i guess right right um you know, and as far as this equipment thing goes, uh, again, I don't know anything I don't need, but I've been going to the same place to get equipment for 30 years. And they, they are so helpful in, you know, if the budget, if the producer calls and says, I'm sorry, we just don't have this much money. They lower the rate. They, they do whatever they can to make me and the producer happy, which is just a wonderful thing. And so it's also no, no trepidation when I send in this list, I know it's gonna work, you know? Um, and it just, that's the way the business works. So how, for how long have you uh, been working with these, with, with these guys? Well, um, they, they started, it's called MBS, and they started in 2013, but they started by buying out the guy that I was getting equipment from for the last 20 years. So it's been 28, 30 years since I've been using this particular place. And, uh, and I, you know, I know so many of the people there and uh, they, they w one of the important things is they maintain their equipment. So when you get it, it works. And that you think, oh, of course it does. Uh, that's not always the case. Uh, some of these places don't spend any money on maintenance. And so then they send out equipment that needs to be repaired. And mm -hmm. wait a minute, you know, and I don't have any extra, so I need this, all of it to work, you know, so. Gotcha. Shout out to MBS. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what about discipline on set? So as a gaffer and like, you know, with the people you work, uh, the crew, are there any uh, specific like rules or the, anything that you kind of like get them to adhere to? Um, I guess, you know, and the thing is I work around in so many different places mm -hmm. that uh, sometimes I'll have a perfect crew and then I go off to Britain or Dubai or something. When I come back, do another movie that crew is busy because they can't just sit around waiting for me to come back you know <laughs> um but i've been really lucky in getting crews the, the most important thing is to pay attention uh this afi class uh i think if i were teaching at afi the first thing i would do is have everybody turn in their phone before the class starts and pick it up after the class is over because People get so distracted by their phones. Um, so my crew pays attention and they're polite. And uh, in 1976, 
I had a woman on my crew on a movie called The Cheap Detective. And every time I turned to ask for something, she was there. I said, I need a baby. I need a 2K. And then I looked over and the four guys on the crew were huddled. And I said, what's going on? And they said, you know, she gets to do everything. I said, it's really simple. If you're there when I turn to ask for something, you'll get to do it. But she's <laughs> always there and you're not. So if anybody leaves, it's going to be you and not her. But it's, it's with, you know, with people starting out, they try harder to prove that they're worthy of the job. And that was what she was doing. And she was, you know, smart and she paid attention and she listened and she followed instructions. And um, so that that's the thing, you know, and um, yeah. years ago, I was working for a gaffer named Joe Odessa. And he was really, really sharp guy. And I was his best boy. And he would say, all right, I need a 5K here and a 5K here. And so I'd get that done. And then he'd go and he'd start lighting in the back of the set to get to the front. And then, all right, then the 5K was there. And so I realized that's what you should do. You just start in the back and work to the front. And you balance to what you've done in the back, you know, all the way to the front. And again, it's not that he told me that, but I watched him and that's the way he did it. And it worked really well. And that's what you do. You know, you, you start lighting with the lights outside coming to the window and, and then you start with the fill light inside or the ambient light. And maybe you're bouncing off a white ceiling or something just for ambience. And, uh, but again, it's trying to make it look as real as possible. Gotcha. Before you wrap up, Jim, any, any words for, uh, young gaffers starting out, young film, filmmakers, uh, if any case. Well, I think um, the way I learned was to pay attention, watch what's being done. And, and I always, when I was, before I was a gaffer, I would ask questions, you know, like, why are you doing that? And I never had anybody refuse to answer me. I mean, you have to, pick your time. You can't, you know, the, if the gaffer is really busy, don't ask him any questions. But then when it is a moment of peace, say, you know, I was wondering um, why you did this. And then he'd say, well, because of this and this and this. Oh, or if he doesn't have an answer, that tells you something too. Uh, but the thing is, when you're starting out, uh, just pay attention, watch what's going on. Of course, we don't have dailies anymore. But but you can look at the monitor, you know, once the scene is lit, you can, you know, don't shove anybody aside, but kind of look over somebody's shoulder and see the monitor and see what it looks like. And does it look good or not? And if it's not, then you know what not to do. And if it looks good, then you know what to do. But it's, it's just, those are dailies, but they're instant dailies. That's another reason I like HD is because that's the image and you sleep much better at night knowing that you've got it right <laughs> and not having to wait till the next day to, oh, that didn't quite work. Oh, no, you know. 100%. Jim, thank you so much for joining. Let's do this again sometime, hopefully. But well, uh, thank you so much. Pleasure. For taking I really time enjoyed off. it. Thank Likewise. you. Likewise. Thank okay. you so much. And until right. next time, this is John Kettier, folks. Okay.